Uh, my, name is, uh, my name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. While you open your Bible or load your Bible, I'm going to go ahead and ramble for uh, just a moment. Uh, again, if you're, if you're new, thank you so much for, for hanging out with us. On the chairs are these Connect cards. We'd love to, to hang out with you in turn. And so, man, fill one out. Uh, let us know when we can hang out with you or how we can pray for you. Drop it in the offering basket uh, or take it to the back information connect area and someone will get, get a hold of you. Uh, in addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, we do have those in the rows uh, before me and on top of that in the connect area. That's our gift to you, so please take one with you. Um, got a couple of announcements before we dive into our time. Uh, the first one is that this afternoon we're having our members class. It's our first one for 2019. And so whether you are new or you've been with us for, for a couple of weeks and you just want to know a little bit more about us, who we are, what we do, why the beards, what do we believe, all that stuff, uh, man, uh, let me personally invite you to join us. That's at 12.30 on the third floor here at the incubator. Uh, lunch and child care is provided, so you have no excuse. But uh, I'd love to, even if it's just a moment, I'd love to hang out with you. So again, that is today and next week. It's a two-part class. Uh, that's at 12.30. We'll go about an hour and a half. The next announcement is, because uh, I don't think you're going to see this on, on the video, but uh, the next announcement is, uh, this coming Wednesday, we're going to have a baptism class because next week we're having baptisms. And so if you have questions about baptism or you need to be baptized, uh, man, I would invite you to join me on, on Wednesday. We're going to be on this, uh, here in the incubator. I don't know if it's on the second floor, but we'll be here at the incubator. It's at 630. It's a quick class just looking at uh, what the gospel is and ultimately what scripture teaches about baptism. I love answering those questions. That's on Wednesday. Those are all the formal announcements I have for you. Uh, man, let's dive into our time. Let me, let me recap a little bit uh, of where we're at. First, it's really good to be home. Uh, man, I've been out of town for, for two weeks. I know I was here two Sundays ago, but last Sunday Nathaniel got to preach and he did a tremendous job uh, with 1 Peter uh, 1, 17 through 21. He just killed it and knocked it out of the park, which is really, really cool. So thankful for him. Uh, but man, just glad to be home. Missed you guys. Uh, missed walking through uh, 1 Peter. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I, I, I preached at a friend's church called The Well, uh, Well Community Church in San Antonio. They're awesome. They pray for y'all. We pray for them. They're cool, but it's also even cooler being home uh, with you. So with that being said, uh, we're walking through a sermon series, uh, a, a study in First Peter, and the sermon series is titled Exiles. Now we've purposely chosen that title because on a few different occasions, the apostle Peter refers to the church as exiles. And in particular, uh, at week one, when we started, he refers to them as elect exiles. That is that they are chosen by God and in spite of, or in light of being chosen by God, that they are also sojourners in this world, in this land. Uh, and, and we spent about three weeks really just diving into Peter's, uh, not so much argument, but, but Peter's encouragement to the church uh, in light of their identity in Christ. 
One of the cool things about that is you see Peter's, because we're going slow throughout this series, you see Peter's intention with uh, encouraging the church. In week one, he addresses them, excuse me, he addresses them as elect exiles, but he also addresses the work of God for them and in them in the present tense so that they would be immediately encouraged. When we walked into week two, Peter once again addresses the work of God for them and through them and then reminds them of a future inheritance that they will receive that is being guarded right now uh, by God through faith. And then the third week of that section, we looked at Peter again encouraging them on the work God has done for them and in them by reaching back to the past and addressing what the prophets prophesied about, that is the coming Messiah. And, and Peter encourages them with the fruition of this message that salvation has come to them. And so now God through Peter speaks to us to encourage us. And two weeks ago, Uh, there was this one word that makes a big difference and shifts his tone in this letter. And the word was, therefore, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 1, that when Peter wrote, therefore, it implies that he's coming to a conclusion and he's also changing the direction of his tone and of the content he's about to present to the church. And so essentially what Peter says is, when, he's, when, when he writes, therefore, he's saying, in light of what I just told you, in light of who you are, as a result of what God has done for you, in you, this is what you are to pursue. And so we've spent about two weeks talking about the pursuit of holiness, And he opened up verse 13 by saying something really encouraging. He says, uh, therefore, preparing your minds for action. We we looked at what the King James Version said, uh, where where, uh, the writer said, or Peter says in that that translation, uh, gird up the loin of your mind right? If, you, if you're like, what did I just walk into? You could just go listen to the sermon two weeks ago. Way better context. But when Peter says, preparing your minds for action, uh, he, what he is saying is, okay, you need to get your head straight. This is who you are in Christ. And as a result of that, you need to be ready. And it's going to start with your mind. And so you need to be sober-minded, which means you need to make sure that your judgment isn't clouded. And the only way that you are sober-minded is not only by being in Christ, but also knowing that your sin leads you to lament. You know the devastation of sin, and you know that you are a child of God. And so he encourages us with a pursuit of holiness by telling us who, we, who the Father says we are. Nathaniel covered the work of Christ in holiness for us last week. And so now this week we get to a lot of people's actually, beginning in this section throughout the, the majority of the rest of the letter, this is where we get into the section that a lot of people love the practical stuff. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to do it. Tell me why I should do it and tell me what it looks like. And so we're going to attempt, or I'm going to attempt to walk through those things with you this morning. 
And what I want to address is what Peter is talking about in this first section, in verses 22 to 25, he is addressing specifically the church. He is addressing specifically Christians and their pursuit of holiness toward one another. The remainder of the letter, he's going to break up a bunch of sections. Today, it's the pursuit of holiness with one another. Next week, I believe it's going to be the pursuit of holiness in a social context where we're surrounded or we're in an environment where there aren't Christians. What does it look like to pursue holiness there? What does it look like to pursue holiness in light of the authorities that we find ourselves under? What does it look like to pursue holiness in marriage? What does it look like to pursue holiness in the midst of suffering? And so what we're going to do is talk about all that stuff as the weeks continue. Today, we're talking about the pursuit of holiness toward one another. And my hope is that I'm addressing you as individuals, a collective body, but individuals. And so let's jump into the text. I think I've summarized it enough. This is beginning in verse 22. I'll read it and then I'll pray. This is what Peter writes. Having purified excuse me, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. God in heaven, as we uh, continue our time of worship, we begin by man, first saying thank you for allowing us to gather, um, for allowing us to gather and to praise your name. God, I pray that uh, things like what's going to happen after service or lunch or hangout, stuff like that, God, I pray that that would just be momentarily set aside and that we wouldn't be distracted by other things, but that we would be centered on uh, and fixed on your word and the work of Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, if there are those who are here and don't know you, that they would come to know uh, Christ in this time. And that those who do know you, that they would ultimately come to know you more. God, I pray that I would be set aside. I pray that it would be you at work in the hearts and ears of my brothers and sisters. In fact, Holy Spirit, whatever it is I say, whatever lands on ears, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would take it from our ears and apply it and implant it in our hearts. God, we thank you for this time. We praise you for this, uh, for the preached word and our worship of it. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start with a question, and we're going to go kind of slow in this, but here's, here's my question to you. And let me preface briefly. This question is specifically to, to you. Like, this, this isn't, I'm not talking about this organizationally. I'm talking about this personally. What is Storehouse Community Church known for? Put it a different way, that if you call Storehouse Home, what are you or what are we known for? Perhaps we may be known for many things. 
We might be known for our theology. We may be known for our push into community and into one another. Perhaps we're known because of uh, our desire to be missionally minded in our city and in our community. But are we known for, will we, we, excuse me, will we be remembered for the way we love one another? Don't get me wrong. Man, theology's cool. Community is awesome. Mission is essential. But are we known for, will we be remembered for the way we love one another? Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. He writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I gave away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Likewise, Jesus in John 13, 35 said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is an attribute of God because it is holy, it is constant, it is unchanging, it is pure. Love is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. For the past two weeks, we've used Galatians 5.22 as a cross-reference that the fruit of the Spirit begins with love. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And so love is not simply an emotion. But love is a response to conviction. Love is a response to conviction. See, because love is fruit, in other words, we can see it. Because love is fruit, it's a demonstration of something internal. It is a demonstration of something that has transformed. It is a demonstration of something else that someone has done for us. Love is bound by belief, thoughts, and feelings, but it is sealed with truth. And so my second question to you this morning is, what is the condition of your love for one another? What is the condition of your love for one another? I'm going to make it real personal. Perhaps you love with the motivation of personal gain. In other words, maybe you love others so that you would be accepted. Maybe you love others so that you would be liked. Maybe you love others so that you would feel like you belong to a community. Is your love based on the condition of personal gain? Is your love based on the condition of personal debt? Do you love others so that they would ultimately be in your pocket? Do you love others so that others have to love you? Not only are they in your physical pocket, but now they are in your emotional pocket. 
Is your love based on the condition of personal glory? Do you love others because, frankly, you're just pretty humble? You're pretty holy, and you're righteous. You're glad you love so well because if more people loved like you, the world would simply be more lovely. Perhaps you love for personal glory. Look how holy I am. At least I'm not like those people. Perhaps you love, or the condition of your love is based on personal shame. That you feel like your sin is so great that if others would just love you, it would be so heavy you would forget about your shame. You would forget about your guilt. And so it's replaced by what may be perceived by neediness. And it's just, man, I just want to get rid of my shame and my guilt. And if people just tell me good things about how I look, what I do, at some point, it'll be so much positivity that that negativity won't affect me. Peter addresses the church to love one another, and he addresses it as a command, as an encouragement, and as a reality. You see, if they, like we, if we are to stand firm on the finished work of Jesus, then perseverance is essential, and it begins with one another. It begins with one another. So we're going to look at a couple of sections. Again, if you're new, I love lists. And we're going to get a little nerdy. The first section begs the question, so then what are we to do? We just read verses 22 to 25. We looked at maybe some ways that convict us in light of the condition of our love. So then what are we to do? What does it look like? And I want to look at two things. I want to look at what godly love is. And I want to look at the purity of heart. All of this is in verses 22 to 25. Beginning with godly love. Let's go to verse 22. Peter writes, having purified your souls, we're going to talk about that, by your obedience to the truth, we're going to talk about that too. He says, for a sincere brotherly love. This is where we get nerdy. I want you, if you take notes, underline the word love. Circle it, highlight it, whatever it is you do. The reason I want you to underline it is because, again, he's addressing specifically Christians. And when he says, with a sincere brotherly love, that word love in the original language, it's this kind of coolish word, it's called Adelphos. What it means is brotherly and familial affection. It is a love that comes as a result of who we are. That in light of what God has done for me, uh, man, I am your brother in Christ. That's in light of what God has done 
for me, that we could establish the relationship. At, at, at the very least, we could establish the relationship that when it comes to the church, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. How did we get to be brothers and sisters? Because of what Christ has done. And not only has he reconciled us to the Father, but he has reconciled us to one another. As a result, he has adopted us into his family, making us brothers and sisters. That's the first love. Then he intensifies it. Obedience of the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That is that establishing the relationship. Love one another earnestly. That second love, underline it, highlight it, whatever it is you're doing. That second love is another word. It's a different kind of love. It's a more intense love. In the original language, it's called agape. It is a love that is emptied of all self-righteousness and pride. It is a love that is costly and sacrificial, filled with humility and grace for one another. Listen to the Apostle John. This is 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. This is what John says. We love because he first loved us. We're going to talk about that later. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother and whom, excuse me, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. See, agape love demonstrates the person of Jesus. It reflects his character. It proclaims transformation. We discussed this or we walked through this a couple of weeks ago that the Christian life is not about conformity but about transformation. It is a love that is not aimless or general, but specific, but specific. And I want to come back to that in just a minute. The second thing that Peter talks about in light of uh, uh, what, what we are to do, so he says godly love, the second one is a purity of heart. In other words, this love, the one that we just talked about, this love can only be produced as a result of a pure heart, a regenerated heart that the individual is now born again. How that love is produced is by first God making us alive in Christ. Outside of that, we only have a perception or a picture of what we think love is or what we want it to be. And most of the time, this is where Christians really want to park. This is where Christians really want to hold on to. See, I want to perceive my truth. I want to talk about what I think it is. I want to look at how I feel about it. And what we often do is that we separate ourselves from the truth. Well, what is the truth? The truth is that we love because God first loved us. That God entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ, lived in our place, died our death on the cross, and now freely gives the grace that you and I cannot earn. And as a result of that, he makes our dead hearts, our spiritually dead hearts, alive in Christ so that we would not only be confronted with the gospel, but also our sin. And in belief, faith, and repentance, place our eyes on Christ. 
that we are now able to love freely, that we are able to love biblically, that we are able to love as a result of what Christ accomplished on the cross. A dead heart cannot generate a gracious and holy love. God must first make you alive in Christ. Earlier this morning as I was looking at this, um, I begged the question, man, so Peter is telling us to sincerely love one another. And then he says, uh, so he says, with a, a sincere brotherly love, and then he emphasizes it, love one another. And I began to wonder, and you could help me with this later, um, like as in after service. Um, I began to wonder, if we're talking about this, this, this Adelphos and agape love, being kind of nerdy with that, what's the opposite for the Christian? When we don't want to love, what, what is the opposite? And I could really only come to two conclusions. Uh, one is going to be found in Hebrews 12. But the first one that led me to think through this is the opposite of, of this agape love, this, this love that is filled with grace and humility and patience as a result of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. The opposite of grace is vengeance. The opposite of grace is vengeance. In addition to that, the opposite of grace is also bitterness. Look at Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 12. This is what the writer says. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The opposite of grace is bitterness. And we are incapable of loving one another if there is a root of bitterness that has taken place in us. And because a root of bitterness has been, if a root of bitterness has been, has taken root in our lives, we lose sight of the gospel. We lose sight of the person and work of Jesus. And we embrace that it isn't Christ who rules our hearts, but it is something else who rules our hearts. So Peter tells us to love one another. So then the next question is, well, what does it look like? Two things, same thing in that section. First one is that it ought to be sincere. Right, let's go back up. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. He says it has to, look, uh, has to be sincere. Well, what does sincere mean? What Peter's saying is that it must be unhypocritical. Like that's the word in the original language. Unhypocritical. Now, with that being said, we still haven't even dived into the practical. Let's take a step back. 
He says that your love for one another, our love for one another must be sincere, that it is uh, not hypocritical. That does not mean that relationships aren't complex or complicated and you hold off. That's not what it means. It means that in spite of those complications, you step into the relationship with humility and with patience. That's what it means to love one another sincerely. And this is hard. This is hard for multiple reasons. Because some of us will uh, struggle with fear. Some of us struggle with disappointment. Some of us struggle with the what-ifs. When he says to love one another with a sincere love, he's blanket covering us. In other words, we're all to do it. We don't get to step out and say, well, I gotta, I gotta think about that. A sincere love is modeled by God in Christ. That is, Christ entering into human history. What does that mean? He stepped into the mess that is our life in spite of the complexities and complications that come with relationships. He willingly stepped in with humility and patience. So it has been modeled for us. Doesn't make it easy but it has been modeled for us. It must be an earnest love. He writes elsewhere, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That is, that we are eager to love one another. That it is our desire because of what God has done for us and in us. I love the way Paul David Tripp uh, says, what he says about, about earnest love. That is, it is actively fighting the temptation to be critical and judgmental toward one another while looking for ways to encourage and praise. I like that. Actively fighting the temptation. And when Christians separate themselves from the truth, we stop actively fighting temptation because now our thoughts, our feelings, and our beliefs are run by what we say they're run by rather than the truth that ought to encompass them. And here's the thing, as we start getting more and more practical, like I get that this is hard. And I get that some of you are like, man, you don't know. You're, you're probably right. I, I don't know your situation. Earlier this morning, I, uh, man, I apologized uh, to one of the guys. I love him. He's, he, is, he is my brother, one of my best friends. And man, I'm apologizing to him for sinning against him. Um, and, and the root of my sin was fear that I feared that we wouldn't be friends anymore. I feared that what I would present to him would not only make my shame great, but that he would take it and walk away. I get that it's difficult, and I get that sometimes it's scary, and we ought to step into it. So what's the motivation? We've looked at the what, right? Like, love one another. Got it. Sincerely. Okay. Earnestly. So what's our motivation? What's our why? Right? Three things. 
First one is purification. It's that first word that Peter uses. He says, having purified your souls. All right, uh, we're going to get nerdy. In the sense of having been or having purified, that's a perfect participle, which means that it demonstrates an action that happened in the past. English teachers? No? Okay. Yes. <laughs> when, I, <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, yeah, because my degree's in English, and that's I just put all my money in there. That's all right. So anyway, having purified is an action. Uh, he's intending it for it to be an action that was completed in the past. So when he says, having been purified, what, what Peter is saying, that not only have we been redeemed, and by the way, if you don't know what redemption is, if you don't know what being redeemed is, it is that Christ purchased you out of slavery. The word redemption doesn't just mean a second chance like a UFC fight. The word redemption actually fits in the context of stepping in and buying someone out of slavery. Yeah, it's a little bit deeper, right? It makes you think twice about cage fighting, right? And so uh, when, when it comes to that, that Christ purchased us out of slavery to our sin. That's the first half. The second half is that we would never return to it. That we would never return. And so not only have we been redeemed, not only have we been made new, not only have we been given a new identity, but we have been forgiven. But we have been forgiven. How have we been forgiven? On the cross. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for sinners. On the cross, Jesus not only paid for our sin, not only did he who knew no sin became sin, not only did that happen, but he satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. That is, is how we have been purified. Because of his obedience and because of his work, we have been purified and forgiven. The cost of purification was Christ's death on the cross. You can have redemption, you can have forgiveness by placing your trust in Christ and repenting of your sin. I am not guaranteeing you a new car or money or your best life now. I am telling you that you would receive a new heart. That's what you get. A new heart. So our motivation first is purification, what God has done in us and for us through Christ. Number two, obedience. Same verse, having purified your souls by your obedience. I want to talk about obedience with two things. Number one, obedience demonstrates our faith. James says elsewhere that uh, faith without works is dead. Obedience is a demonstration of our faith. Obedience is us actually following through with what we say we believe in. And obedience reflects our identity. It reflects our identity. Some of you may even hold just to the first one, right? It, it reflects or, or it demonstrates my faith. You can, tool, you can do a lot of good things and not know Jesus. You can be in the church and do really good things and not know Jesus. That's why it's a twofold thing. Obedience is not only a demonstration of our faith, but obedience points to our identity. 
Let's go back two weeks ago to 1 Peter chapter or 1 Peter 1:14. This is what he says. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter addresses us as children of God. In other words, it's not that we obey so that we would belong to God. It is that we belong to God, therefore we obey. That's what Peter is getting at. Obedience reflects our identity, who we belong to, who we worship, who has purified our souls. That's what it points to. It isn't just for the purpose of doing generally good things. It made to point back to the person and work of Christ. Number three, the truth. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Well, what's the truth? The truth is the gospel, that the gospel has been proclaimed, that the gospel has regenerated our hearts, that the gospel has been implanted. He goes on elsewhere in this section using an agricultural analogy. He goes on to say, uh, not only have you been born again, but not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Uh, all flesh, he's quoting Isaiah 40, all flesh is like grass in all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. He's saying this word that has not only been preached to you, this word that has not only regenerated you through the Holy Spirit, this word that has not only been implanted in you by Christ, it's not like any other seed that's going to birth this tree and eventually it will die. This seed that has been implanted in you by God will never perish. It will never perish. It will remain forever. It is the truth that governs our feelings, our beliefs, and thoughts. Say it one more time. It is the truth, that is the gospel that governs our feelings, our beliefs, and our thoughts. Do you know what the opposite of abiding is? Withering. That's what the opposite of abiding is. But this, this truth that has been implanted in us, man, it is a work of God in us and for us, and it is us also growing in our maturity, us actually doing something about it. Otherwise, we, not the truth, but we wither. It makes it personal. So the final question. How do we love one another? Everybody's now, now everybody's ready. Now it's practical, right? Here we go. How do we love one another? In community, everybody's like, what? Give me something theoretical. We love one another in community. You see, you can't step in, you know what I talked about earlier, stepping into uh, the complexities and complications of relationships and friendships. You can't step in if you never actually hang out, okay? Stepping in is not metaphorical or theoretical. It's biblical. Like, I wasn't just trying to sound cool so that you can post something, right? Like, Stepping in means exactly that. You step in. How you step in, you do it in community. 
So let's look at three things. And I'm sure you can find better ones, uh, but I hope this encourages you. How do we love one another? Number one. Oh, it's up here. How do we love one another? Uh, we confront one another with the gospel. <gasps> right? Now, when it comes to confrontation, the reason everybody like kind of sits up and sits to the edge and maybe becomes a little bit more conservative is because I think oftentimes we have replaced confrontation with tolerance, right? But when we read through scripture, like there are moments of confrontation all over. In addition to that, it makes it a little bit more normal, but in addition to that, I think oftentimes confrontation is hard is because we're assuming that someone's going to come guns blazing, so we're going to lock and load, and we're going to come guns blazing, and so everyone's adrenaline is high because of the word confrontation. Right? That's how dumb we are. But when it comes to confronting one another with the gospel, here's what I would say. Before you confront someone with the gospel, hold the mirror of God's word to yourself first. The reason I say that is because you're going to do that to the other person when you confront them with the gospel. If they have sinned against you, if there's sin between you two, you're going to do that. You're going to hold the mirror of God's truth to them. But you're going to do it to yourself first. The reason I say you're going to do it to yourself first is because oftentimes we want to approach people with the motivation of being right and with the motivation of justice rather than with motivation of grace. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have a strong word, or that doesn't mean that, you know, other things. It just means, man, is my heart prepared for this? And so we're going to confront ourselves with the truth about God's word. Listen to James 1, verse 22 to 24. He says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So essentially, he's saying, just because you're hearing the word doesn't mean you're actually doing it. It's not the same thing. So stop deceiving yourself. And then he goes on to say, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And so when we confront one another with the gospel, it's actually going to begin with us holding the mirror of God's truth about ourselves first. And then when we go and love one another and address one another and there's something that we need to talk about, we're going to address it with the truth of God's word. The second thing is we comfort one another with the gospel. What I'm talking about when it comes to comfort, biblical comfort is not human affirmation to boost your self-esteem. You can do it. You're great. You're beautiful. You're a snowflake. Like all those things. Like that's, it's not right? Biblical comfort is holding out God's promises. You can biblically comfort someone with the gospel as an individual who has also received grace from God in spite of their sin. You are confronting one another with the truth of God's word, and you then comfort one another with the promises of God's word. Now you can do this if there's beef between you or not. 
But it's weird that we only talk about these things when there's beef. You can comfort one another and there not be any beef. We just don't want to do it. I mean, I'm just going to be honest, right? We just don't comfort. Oh, but when it comes to confrontation, we're ready to go, right? Confronting and comforting with the gospel in the Bible is not like, it's not not normal. It's very normal in scripture because the purpose of them is that we are building one another up to present one another as holy and mature before Christ. Remember the motivation, purification, obedience, and truth. That's why we're doing it. And then the third thing, address heart issues. Address heart issues. When we're talking about heart issues, that means, uh, man, we got to listen. We got to listen if we're going to address heart issues. Most of the time, for instance, when I've met with people uh, who, are, who are angry, most of the time, the, the root of their anger is fear. So that's, that's addressing the heart issue. I'm not just addressing the fact that they're angry. I certainly want to care for them in that. But at the same time, I also want to get to the root. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's rejection. Sometimes it's self-righteousness. Sometimes it's confusing. They're, they're confused. Right? There's, there's address the heart and address behavior. It's okay to talk about it. Hey, when you said this, hey, when you did this, man, I was, I was offended or this hurt me. Address it. It's, it's okay. You can do it. And I say that like with utter love. You can do it. And I say that as an individual who struggles with this heavily. Right? Because my thing, my root often is fear. I mean, I just shared one with you earlier, right? My fear was that I would lose my friend, right? And then finally, under, under addressing heart issues, bring forward God's agenda. Well, what's, what's God's agenda? Listen to Joel 2, 12 through 13. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. You see, when we present God's agenda to one another, it reminds us that God is calling us to repent. He is calling us to repent of our sin. He's calling us to fix his eyes on Christ. He is reminding us of what he has done. He's reminding us of who we are. And just like we have been reconciled to him in Christ, we have been reconciled to one another. And so we present that truth before one another. This should not be special occasion. I only do this once a quarter kind of conversation. This should be a part of life. And so I'll close with this purification, we talked about that earlier, purification makes us, it forces us through conviction to be aware of God's work for us and in us so that we would be free to love one another. Let's pray. God, as we close our time, we, man, we thank you for this time where we get to, to worship you through the, uh, through, the, through the preached word. God, in this time, 
Uh, man, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in uh, the minds and hearts of my brothers and sisters. God, when you command us and call us to love one another, I think very quickly and very selfishly we retract because we tend to think about ourselves first, and often it can lead to this self-righteous, pharisaical conduct. It can lead to a hardened heart. And so God, would you forgive us of our hardened hearts? God, would you please remove that from us and, and remind us, remind us that you have made us alive in Christ, not as a result of what we've done, but what you've done and who you are. God, would you strengthen us to step into the complexity and complications of friendship and church life and relationships for the purpose of reflecting the glory of Christ, for the purpose of conducting ourselves in holiness, not one that we've achieved, but one that we have received in light of the finished work of Christ on the cross.